have to say it because I'm tr I'm starting to make my CV messy. So far, it was clean. <laughs> yeah, my CV was so far was impeccable, but now I start to make it very messy. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you're doing. I'm I'm sure you will you would do a great stuff. Uh, that's I'm I believe in that. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find science robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about the research. Thanks, Science Robotics, for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. So maybe, I, I yeah, I would like to ask maybe first how you'd like to define yourself for you people listening. How would you like to define yourself? Well, there are many personalities for researchers' takes, but I think uh, I myself most pro pre predominantly see as engineer. And uh, I have my own definition about engineer. I think engineer is the folks that who are solving the problem by using science. So I'm really about solving problems, guy. So, yeah. So I'm engineer, and I like to solve the problem. And happens to be it is based on science, good or bad. <laughs> awesome. So you said mentioned mentioned at the beginning that you start robotics and then in material science. Can you tell us again about what could be missing? when you entered your PhD and you started working in designing the soft material for robotics application here, what was missing? Or you still think still missing in the research here? Yeah, well, it's a little interesting uh, kind of process that how I switched to different fields. Like when I apply for grad school in my grad school application and SOP, uh, and even when I enter the, the, the got admitted by MIT and tried to find a lab to join, I wanted to go for robotics lab. So, so I applied, like I basically asked to join all the robotics lab, but somehow there was no funding to join. <laughs> so, uh, um, so I like the, the, so therefore it's not like intended option, like intended choice. If, uh, if any robotics lab in MIT mechanical engineering would uh, get me at that moment, I'd probably do robotics still like hardcore or good school, old school robotics. But at that moment, there was no robotics lab to join. I could join. Um, so I had to go for plan B. The plan B is if I cannot work on robotics, I may work on robot, like materials or robots. Because I was excited about artificial muscle kind of thing for entire my bachelor period. So that's uh, the thing. And uh, one material then, because I was fascinated by software actuators and artificial muscle kind of thing for a whole time, it was natural that, well, if it is a material, it should be soft material. <laughs> 
because I, I didn't like the biology at the time. And I, I, I like, and I had a, so many horror story of my friends that I like feeding cells first and themselves about kind of those kind of a, like a bio horror story. So uh, I didn't want to go too, too, too much toward the biology or biomaterial, but more like a, a material by itself in a material science and engineering or mechanics aspect. But anyway, it was a soft material that is obvious plan B. So I went there and somehow as everybody doing the PhD in grad school, like research topics are just the bumping in all the unpredictable directions. So what I currently do is complete mixture of locks and uh, serendipitous events, but somehow like um, I was a wannabe robotic engineers, but I just couldn't do that for my PhD thesis because no lab, uh, no robotics lab I could join, but somehow it's kind of going there. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Maybe before going to that, I, I want to ask you in general, because I feel you are really smart guy and I have, in yeah, your opinion about the field, but I think you are more critical and I would love to know your opinion when it comes to soft robotics field in general. What may be something do you think we still don't well, push so much here? Well, I think uh, every field have their life cycle as like a human being, as like a like kids, adolescent, young adult, adult and as aged uh, or the good person. Uh, soft robotics was very young field when I first saw it in my uh, uh, undergrad school. Uh, uh, and it was actually, uh, to, to say the George Wise side is known to be very much an innovator there, but it's not true in some sense, because when I was in undergrad school, it's almost 10 years, more than 10 years ago, I read a lot of papers from Japanese robotic scientists. Uh, and it was already there, you know, the, all the concepts and things was there, but it's just not popular in other fields. It's just a very narrow branch of, uh, you know, uh, robotics community. Like, for example, there is a big conference called uh, IROS, which is co-sponsored by the Japanese Robotics Society. There are a bunch of those things because Japanese uh, robotic scientists and engineers are work on those things. Uh, so it was really young at the moment, and later, uh, uh, around 10 years ago, I think George Whiteside uh, published one paper in Angevante, uh, I believe. Then it becomes pretty popularized, and other fields people in general, material scientists and chemical engineers are recognizing things and become very popular. And now I think it's not young field anymore. So it's engineering is when the field is not become young, it's, it's kind of getting a young adult uh, or start to get a job kind of period. The question is, uh, engineering is really about solving problems and it's a purpose of its existence. So where it can be used. So uh, I think that's the critical moment that people start to answer the questions because in when the field is very young, it is totally t fine and it's actually not actually matter at all. So just exploring interesting ideas, developing the conceptual things, playing different things, because it's all great because it is really uh, growing still. But when it hits the, some critical mass and critical stage of the development, it have to start to answer the question because it is engineering driven technologies that very actually can be used. And I think uh, it is, it's a still kind of debating stage yet, uh, but I personally wish it's people can find the solutions uh, or answers for that 
but it's really not uh, easy in my opinion because soft robotics is actually not a robotics uh, in classical definition. It's a something new, something very new. It's a it's a not a kind of a continuously developed form of a robots, but it's a some kind of a very different thing that emerged uh, outside of the classical robotics field, but it just uh, happens to be uh, actuating and uh, 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 dynamically interacting uh, synthetic system, which we only have a word to call it as a robot. So it's called as a robot just because we only have the word for robot to describe such a thing but it's really not a continuously emerged form of a discipline from classic robotics. So it's a, it's a challenge because the soft robot, because it's not continuously developed from the classical robot, it's not really suitable to do the same job as the classical robot do. Uh, and uh, so it's, I think it is a quite a, quite a challenge. Uh, and many people try to answer that. Uh, and uh, some of the folks that I personally collaborate also try to answer that. And I personally see some most excitement in hybridizes the concept, like instead of uh, uh, try to find out of the use of the soft robots as a, it is, as an independent entity or independent system, which looks, I think is a little more futuristic. It's very challenging thing, thing to think about it because unless the soft robotic system eventually becomes something similar functionality or capability as the animal body, it's gonna be very difficult to be independently useful. But I personally like the idea of a hybridization concept that is some part of the conventional robots are being replaced or adjunctly added by those interesting system. So that kind of compensating some of the limitations or problems of a traditional robots are suffering is being kind of amended by this kind of soft robotic concept. So I'm more of a hybridized guy, hybridization pathway guy for now, uh, but you know, many people like the idea of all soft body, the robot, which is very futuristic, uh, but I think it will be take more time to be actually being fruitfully um, emerging or something useful form. Great. Maybe I want to go before going to Sinehil and the starting the company. I think that's also a very interesting part, but in the PhD process here, you try to, I think, to push as much as you can to come up with innovative solution or new ideas. And I found what you do is really interesting. If you can tell us about the problem that you try to think, because you're most time critical and you try to push as much as you can. And you did an amazing job in the, in, in the research. And if you can tell us about the, the problem, what you try to, try to solve in your research before going to Senehil and how it's Yeah, done. well, <laughs> so, um, you know, um, uh, in first half of my PhD, I didn't really do my research to solve a particular problem. Maybe because I was younger, so I was more energetic and more kind of imagination and for fun driven. So uh, at that time, I just do whatever I think it is fun. Like So, so like my first half of the PhD is just uh, spread all over. Like I did so many weird and different things I did. Uh, gel-based software actuators, like magnetic thing, 3D printing, you know, sticking gel, whatever. It's just all over the place. It's just the kind of, just the for fun. 
Uh, but later I realized that, well, I cannot do this forever. So I have to find my purpose uh, that what's the problem that I can solve. Uh, I think it is twofold. First of all, personally, I'm always interested in biomedical thing because the, I still can see in my SOP that in my grad application, I wrote that I want to work on uh, rehabilitation robotics. And why I wrote that is I spent uh, almost two years in hospital with my brother because brother, my brother got injured a lot. And I see the like the need of various medical technologists, but at that time was like I, I was really on robotics, so I was kind of on rehabilitation robotics. But in general, those if somebody is staying two years uh, in hospitals from ER room to ICU to every single stage of the hospital, there are a lot of problems, and you pay a lot, but it's really. Many of them are suboptimal solutions that pay a lot. So, well, medical is personal problem that I always wanted to solve. And second, there's more realistic constraints. Happens to be I worked on hydrogels uh, among many sub-materials. And come on, like, where it can be used in elsewhere. Like, it's a gel, it's a hydrogel, it's a water-based gel. It dries out in one day if you take <laughs> in the air. It is not useful outside of the wet environment. But, uh, but can we use this underwater? That's also a little realistic, right? So other than underwater, the, the where is always wet is biological system. So it happens to be the hydrogel system is most useful by materialistic characteristics in biomedical. So it combined this realistic and personal reason I wanted to make some uh, biomedical uh, stops if I want to make actual impact and well, what I can do, I cannot say I can, I want to cure cancer. Well, I, I want to do, but I just can't contribute. So, but happens to be, I worked on a, a, a additions and solid hybridization, those kind of thing. When interestingly, uh, addition is one of the really, really, really few mechanical phenomena uh, that is relevant to the biomedical engineering because uh, basically repair process of every, every broken thing is about sticking things together. So why not? So that's a kind of a thought process. And it took, uh, I think, uh, three, four years to transit from uh, complete material and mechanics forks to something I can call myself as a biomedical person. It took uh, three years because it just needed a lot of experiences about uh, preclinical models whatsoever. But I was lucky that I could finish, but I don't recommend to do this for other people because it's too risky. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that's, that, yeah, to be honest, I really admire what you did. And I think maybe the decision to, to start Sinahil, I think that sounds very interesting. Maybe I, I read what you wrote. Why did you choose to do that? And I really like it what you said, and I feel a lot of courage to do that. I mean, you have the really strong record of research. I mean, very uh, intelligently and be reviewed. I think it's and risky, which is not so common in my opinion. That's what I think. But can you tell about that article, the small one you wrote, and your decision to let's start and go for the other side and not continue? Can you elaborate why you did that? And do you think it was kind of risky decision for you because you did something here? I mean, solid research. You mean, you mean the uh, transition? 
yeah transition between academic and non-academic exactly that's the first yeah that's the first part because i think it's just i feel it's it's so you're courageous here to mention your opinion and why you did this to to go for that yeah well that's a that's a question that i personally get a lot from my friends and colleagues because I didn't intend it, but somehow my career development looks so much to become one of your faculty. So I got the same question a lot and a lot. Well, um, I personally don't think it is uh, involved any courage to do it because, well, come on, like I am scientist and you are a scientist probably too. So we have to gather the uh, evidences to make the decision about certain phenomena to what gonna be the experience prediction so uh, it's the process of uh, gathering various information to help me to make the decision and which actually doesn't involve much of courage although it's risky uh, 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 the thing that I decided to do a non-academic career uh, other than academic career which I, was actually pretty easy for me to go academic career is um, uh, two things first of all it was a realization that if somebody really wants to make a technology being actually used in people, it requires not only uh, development of technology, which is generally uh, uh, start with a paper public, not end, but start with a paper publication. Uh, but the problem is some areas, especially like biomedical engineering whatsoever, the uh, risk involved in commercializing a technology from the very basic like a lab grown technology is too high so I tried to find the various other options but I just simply found that it gonna not happen if the inventor is taking that responsibility of getting risk to push things into the market so it was a very stark observation that I got is it's really just the two or two of one. I don't continue to push it into the market so it will never be gonna be commercialized or I push it to the commercialization so that it have a chance to become a product to be actually used. So this is the really the first thing. The risk involved in a commercialization or product development is way too high. There are gonna be no big company that magically license your technology and made do the all those complicated. No, there's nobody. So it's a really a, a matter of a, whether the inventor really can push it themselves or just to let the technology languish and die off, just slowly for, forgotten away. Is not really get to the war. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, I have my personal opinion about doing uh, working in a university. Uh, setup is I think a university job faculty job is really bad in financial outcome uh, it's I think everybody would agree it's horrible it's really bad uh, but uh, that job is very unique in a way that is education is all about education is entire like a hundred percent about education educating the younger generation to help them to intellectually and career-wise being developed and there I see uh, some unnegotiable problem I faced. Why? Because I identify myself as engineer. And if I keep teaching younger people, those youngsters will also likely be one of the engineers. Because I'm engineer, I want to teach next generation engineers. But here is the problem that I faced. 
engineer is the people who need to be able to solve the problem by using science. And that problem should be a real problem to actually benefit society. And therefore, by seeing the statistics, more than two thirds of the engineering PhD eventually work in industry. Just a matter of fact. How, how hard they want to be a faculty or research, doesn't matter. It's just at the end of the day, statistics tells us that more than two thirds of the engineering PhD works in industry to work on companies, startups, or whatever related industries. So here's the problem that I asked myself and I find this very astound like astounded. Well, if I have to care about a teaching, which means I'm gonna get a job in university, I will work as an engineer, so therefore I will teach engineering to grow the next generation of engineering. But come on, engineer is about solving real problems, and more than two-thirds of those students will work in industry. But if I don't have any experience about the after the R&D, like I, if I have a zero experience or understanding about what's happening after initial R&D, but there are tons of things, right? If I don't know of any of it, do I be, can I be able to be a capable teacher? Anyway, like it, it just, to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> So even for me that I want to become a faculty in some time and I want to teach the youngsters in university setup, even that, I thought that I have to learn, or I have to first learn the full circle of a process that engineers should do and actually do in the real world. But how dare I can say that I can teach us the brightest mind in the world in some other place if I never ever see or finished my own full circle, but I, how dare I can teach them to do that. So it was just a complete uh, a, a mismatch. So combine this two, first, well, I don't want to see my technology that I, I hardly invented myself is dying off on the shelf, nobody use it. I, I just don't want to see that. Second, even though at some point in my career, if I want to teach people as an educator or whatever university or whatever institutional setup, still I think it is essentially important to know that remaining half of the life cycle as engineer so that finishing the circle myself. And only when I can really wholeheartedly can teach the youngsters that how they can train themselves, how they can work and function themselves as a true engineers in the society, instead of a really just a publishing something to get a fancy spotlight, which die off in a few months. It's not the engineer's goal. Good papers are good. Papers are lovely. People like the papers. But at the end of the day, engineers should solve the problem. And uh, it's really important to know the whole process because otherwise, you know, it can, there are always danger to misguide the bright-minded young people, you know, and I think uh, misguiding smart and uh, uh, intelligent youngsters with the high potential is not only wrong, it is a crime to humanity. People should be very, very careful about not misleading them, but the lack of knowledge is always a great setup to misleading somebody. So that was kind of ground basis of my decision to, well, 
Seemingly for both ends, uh, I may want to go a little bit of Noma Academy career first. That was powerful. And I totally agree with you 100%. It should be that way. And I, I think I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think it's maybe the system set up in a certain way. But I think having this experience, you are right to change the way we teach younger generation in the university. Totally agree with you. Totally agree. Well, like if I just a, a little bit adding on that, it's like because I am from mechanic engineering, uh, and you should be very familiar with the mechanic engineering because robotics people are mostly mechanic engineers. Say 30, 40 years ago, in the golden age of the mechanic engineering, I should say, it was like that. You know, the most founding peoples about most of the mechanic engineering disciplines that like base people who laid the ground were from industry. You know, they trained in university, they go to the industry, they did a great job. And when they kind of get a little old or cannot just work that hard, return back to the academia, they teach people. So basically the workforce switching between industry and academia was really, really flexible at that time. And I think that was a ideal kind of engineering school. Uh, it's basically when the engineering school first established in United States, it was not there, it was all science before. When the engineering school first emerged, it was that mode. And somehow we currently lost its original form. It has been segregated. But I think it's really now the time to everybody think about we have to go back to the original form because it was originally like that. Awesome. So I want to ask you again here when you mentioned having new idea and you mentioned papers great and that's okay, the current in academia, but now you're switching for read world application here and read problem. How will you make sure what you did is meeting the, the end goal here to be commercialized or to start? You see, is there a difference here in sold or design to change things here? No, I think uh, that's another thing that I really learned by the process. Um, the, it's really important to talk or learn from people who actually know the problem. For example, in biomedical related, well, it's doctors, it's surgeons and clinicians. It's, it's important in my opinion that it's, when it's another problem of the segregation between the real world or industry and academia is that it's very important, I think even in science, not only the engineering is not to assume without evidence. So we should not assume the unmet need. We should not assume the nature of the problem and we should not assume the solution that would be necessary or be preferred or be adoptable. So not to assume, it is just important to engage and talk with the people who actually know or experience the problem and work with them in collaboration. And that collaboration need a lot of personal efforts or sharing many things. But I think it is decent price to pay because it is very difficult for academics who just to develop their whole career within very small boundary of university in small labs or community that how we would know that all those real problems that people actually suffer outside, at least we have to try to do interview, right? 
or ideally we have to work with the people who actually suffer from problem, know the problem, and can tell you whether this particular solution, what kind of things that solution have to achieve. And if we have something that is, it looks like a solution, but in very crappy form, <laughs> does it have a potential to be actually become a solution or being potentially being adopted in a uh, uh, positive way in, in those things? So it's, we have to learn. It does, it's not a matter of assumption. If, that's not even a matter of intelligence. There are many smart people in academia, but that smartness cannot overcome or uh, the lack of experience. We just need to ask and work together with the people who understand the problem. And that's somewhere that I personally try to do and enjoy so much. You know, it's like, it's, it's a so fun to listen from somebody who does completely different thing. But at the same time, it is my major source of frustration sometimes in uh, when I watch the orders works are published nowadays that it is kind of conspicuous that this process is lacking in many times like people just imagine the imagine the problem imagine the solution and imagine the evaluation even so it's going nowhere because it didn't really reflecting the true met demand that's spoken by the actual user or i should say so mm -hmm. that's a thing that's a great maybe on the skew quickly here what the thing changing in your perspective you have to experience but that thing that you think was very interesting to have this perspective. You mentioned great stuff here, but is there something key, the way of the viewing problem here? You listen to people, but in the design, is there something with changing your perspective in this experience now? You are on the other side. What that thing has changed your perspective so far? Well, I think... Uh... I think it is, uh, it is, uh, well, well, one thing that I develop myself continuously by doing this in perspective wise is, is I always try to decipher uh, complaints to the engineering questions. So it's like, uh, you know, when it, it, the one reason people don't like to listen the actual complaints from actual user is they are not written or they are not expressed in the language of science and engineering. It's just a, like a plain complaint. I don't like this. It doesn't work, something like that. So one perspective that I have is it is very important capability or uh, 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 training to do like listen to those complaints and uh, converting that into a actual question, scientifically defined question or engineering question that we can possibly think about how to solve it. So that's a kind of interesting perspective I develop. Like for example, if I talk with a clinician, they just can talk one one full hour about or something doesn't work. <laughs> but um, in plain language, it's just a li list of a complaints that doesn't have any sense of a, what's the actually the issue. But carefully listen that, and uh, we have to convert that into a, a kind of technical language that we can define the functionality that lacks. We can define the performance that doesn't reach a certain level, something like that. It's, that's a something uh, interesting perspective that um, I develop. And I think that's, a, that's a something that universally useful and fun process probably for all the problem beyond the biomedical things. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Maybe quickly, why did you choose the name Sinahil? Is there a reason behind choosing the name? 
Yeah, well, it's... I actually, I almost forgot because it was quite a time we brainstormed it, but uh, uh, um, uh, we work on a kind of sticky materials like a tissue adhesive thing, but at the end of the day, in uh, eventual vision-wise, we wanted to promote the healthy uh, uh, healing of the people because we are working on a various repair technologies, healing promotion technologies. So in vision-wise, it's really a healthy healing is something that we wanted to achieve. But you cannot name the company as a healthy healing. It sounds like a so dumb, right? So when it sounds dumb, but we still want to have that meaning, the trick is uh, you look in the Latin words. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the uh, uh, heal is good. So, uh, but uh, we found the healthy in Latin was a uh, sana. So we just uh, mm. combined that. So it's a very common. I think uh, people do this like endless time like people first to choose something they want to tell but in e full english it just sounds so dumb so they find some foreign language but if that foreign language is actually a live language that people use it it's also look dumb for that people right so we have to choose a language nobody use the best is a latin classical latin no living human use that as a, their actual language so it sounds like a fancy nobody actually uses so nobody really knows the word right readily yeah. so it's just kind of a i think it is a common company name trick that's <laughs> <laughs> a good good here maybe uh i think we question left but i would like to keep on the the technological roadblocks. Now you have see the other side of the actual development here. What's still challenging? You mentioned beginning at the first year for PhD, you work at 3D printing, different stuff, material, etc. What is still challenging so far? You have this real experience and you figure out that's really challenged so far. Well, so far, the most the biggest challenge I am actively suffering now is how to scale up. Mm how to scale up in reasonable way, reasonable included financial terms, and reasonable means also the regulatory compliance too for medical product. This is a big question that I never asked myself when I worked in a university setup. I think nobody would ask this, uh, but it turns out that it is really a something that can be a life death question. So if they say, uh, like I have technology, um, it worked perfectly well in my hand-cooked small batches. But if there is a no uh, financially, technologically, and regulatorily compliantly reasonable way to scale this up uh, to the cost that we would possibly be able to even imagine to sold, sell, sell in a reasonable price, it's done. There is no way to commercialize. But this knowledge is uh, entirely belongs to industry. This, the, here is the thing that I personally was so stressed out, but I also really excited because the scaling up technology is something that entirely belongs to industry because mm -hmm. it's rarely being studied in the academic world because academia is basically a small batch world. Mm -hmm. So I cannot do it myself, but I can share what I have done and work together, but it cannot be led by me because I have no idea. I'm not expert at all. So it's entirely industry. So we have to find a contract manufacturer or engineer who know those manufacturing processes and work with them to develop this uh, 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 scale up protocols uh, and test run, which cost uh, 
one to two million per each product, a lot of money. Uh, so it's a, it's a stressful part, but it's really fun because, uh, well, probably that's why I do research. Anything I don't know is fun. Uh, so that's a, that's a challenge. Uh, uh, and I think uh, sometimes when people try to push something in a translational way to actually make it into product for physical platform, robotics is obviously the one because robotics is always have a, some form of the hardware belongs to it, right? How to scale up uh, uh, is question. And if it is not a scalable technology, uh, uh, is that high price is uh, possible? But, you know, mm. it's, it's, it makes sense. That's the second question. So that's a, something that I'm actively trying to, uh, I have to do with the other engineers, but uh, it's hard. But, you know, I can tell you, like, I more and more love industry PhDs. They are beautiful people. Uh, they are so professional on things they do. Uh, I really respect how knowledgeable they are. Um, so... I, I already kind of didn't have the like those illusion, but I really kind of now they strongly feel there is a, some uh, very unjustified illusion that the PhDs left in academia is smarter than PhD go for industry. Oh, forget about it. That's an entirely ignorant statement. Industry PhDs are beautiful. They are really uh, doing well on their job and. There are a bunch of critical knowledge that only being developed and retained and being innovated by industry PhDs, which is, is absent in academia. So mostly I nowadays, like my collaborative effort was 100% academia, but nowadays I think two thirds is industry fork and only one third is academic force, including clinical scientists. I actually like the industry forks more because our communication is more straightforward and you know they are well paid, they are like nine to five. Well, so so I don't need to have a meeting with them in the middle of the night in Sunday. Great. <laughs> That's a true. That's true. Maybe nine to five when you start in uh Sinahila, do you think it's stressful a little bit at the beginning? Now, for me, it is impossible. Like, I, I don't work that like that. I work a lot, a lot more than that. But yeah. at least my counterpart in the contracting industry counterpart is nine to five work. That's a great thing, you know. It's, it, it's, it's, it's sometimes very emotionally tolling to work with the postdocs in academic setup that everybody work whole day in weekend. No. Well, it's fine for me because I live my alone. I don't have family here and I'm workaholic myself. It's fine for me, but it's sometimes uh, emotionally tolling to see my colleagues are working so much and paid so badly. And I can see they are tired and they are frustrated. It's sometimes not a good feeling to see your colleagues are all like that. But it, for me, it is really happy to see that my counterparts are balanced life, well-paid, they're happy, and so therefore they can focus on what they do on the time that we work together. So it's a kind of refreshing feeling, but anyway, I, industry I, is a great thing. <laughs> you encouraged me, but I totally agree with what you said, and that's true. I agree with you. Maybe a few questions for you, uh, Lyft. Um, 
What features do you think, the, how do you see the future of the company here? I know it's in the beginning, but when you try to think about this vision, is it important to you or just enjoying the process by itself now? You have the problem scaling up, but generally speaking, the vision well, here. I think uh, where there are lessons I heard, I saw from many startups rise and fall from university. So one thing is, I think it is important to have a big vision and our team's vision is make something useful uh, uh, to help people to repair their injuries and heal better. Uh, for few first indications initially, but we wish it could to be grow over time in various different places. Uh, so eventually we can provide any solution people want to do, but that's a vision. Uh, but uh, as a more practically speaking, as a company, or when, any, any, any startup company that would be, uh, I think it is important to make sure that the first one or two uh, project actually work out to mm -hmm. the market, get clearance from regulatory bodies, get to the market, uh, it's being, it could be used in a pay. I think that's very critical because um, that's something that I try to keep myself uh, because academic people, including myself, I'm 100% academic by training, <laughs> have a bad habit of a too, too futuristic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so have, I get it. Have a, ba have a bad habit of only talking about unrealized future and like a big picture, like a far away goal. But that's a great way somebody works in academia, but if they keep doing in industry, I think it is the fastest way to bankrupt. <laughs> so, I work with the very experienced CEO, serial entrepreneur. So he's the guy who keep things controlled. But myself, who are working on a technology side, I'm trying to keep myself that, well, I have a lots of problem that I want to tap. Maybe a lot of R&D will happen in the company still, but uh, we really need some focus to get the initial most mature technology to be processing its product development and processes so it really can be actually commercialized and get to the people first and then we can enjoy this cycle by repeating it again and again and again and again so that we can actually delivering our promises into something out there so i'm trying to keep myself because you know because you have talked with the many soft robotics for every no week, i apologize so because i think this question my i apologize for the question because it seems because i'm still in academia and you know it's <laughs> I understand it's not the right question now to go very ambitiously here in the future, but that's that's good. No, no, know. it's a, it's a really good to about have a visionary, but it's a, it's a something that because I can tell because I came from academia, I'm still in academia, so I can tell for everybody in academia, it needs some degree of a self-containment because <laughs> if it is not made. You know, everybody in academia, including myself, we can spend whole day by talking about future, but we don't deliver. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Maybe I can ask you, if you look to the field, beyond what you do, what is the next thing you think very, very important to the fields of robotics? You now have the two eyes here from academia and industry and starting your thing. But if you just... Still, guys, I think from my experience, that's something you should also consider a research. If you're in academia, 
push here more or more efforts in this direction. What that direction do you think, Cam? Well, I think uh, it is for like this kind of unconventional robotics, I should say, in the yep. field. I think it is now the moment is uh, mature to start to think about uh, 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 some translational targets, you know, because there have been a lot of a concept out there. So what can be a uh, uh, fastest way to kind of convert these basic technologies into something useful and potentially being used by people as a customer? Uh, one thing that I think will be the is happening now is um, uh, is it's not actually robotics but more like a robotic interfaces in my opinion um, that the companies like Facebook now Meta uh, these people are investing a lot on uh, artificial uh, the, the, the augmented reality or or this virtual reality and they have their own internal corporate labs that are trying to make a new generations of uh, interfaces that help them to interact with the virtual reality or even some hardwares like a robotic system away from somebody remotely to get better uh, uh, interfaced, which potentially be a little more complicated. So where that is a little unconventional robotic system or sensor system may be very helpful. And I think those are kind of a low hanging fruits that people can go for actual uh, translation. Uh, uh, so in my opinion, that there are enough of a basic technologies are out there, uh, in, at least conceptually. So maybe it will give a really a healthy uh, culture in the field that people start to find uh, not huge, but just a, you know, several very realistic uh, and obviously impactful ways to use the technology in very intimate way with the uh, people. And start from there, uh, there are gonna be more and more momentum will be grown, how people can make this into more and more useful out there. So I think that will make the overall field much more like energetic, vibrant, instead of uh, fully focusing on a futuristic concept fight. Like, I even don't know whether there is uh, any remaining insect or animal left to be inspired. <laughs> <laughs> So I, so I like that. You know, I, I started my whole research career about bioinspiration. I wrote a several paper about that, my own inspiration in the interesting creatures. But that's good. But um, I think everybody have to keep doing it whenever they have a good idea. But at the same time, I think it's really going to make the field very healthy to identify few problems that actually this developed technology are being used or translated. And kind of doing a parallel job, like uh, in one side, people are asking questions that nobody know where to use. I think that's uh, most of the time wasted, but still have a very small chance of breakthroughs. I, I think it is a great thing to do for every research field. But at the same time, as an engineering, try to use some of this generated knowledge in a tangible form. Uh, so I think this kind of a parallel track will be more interesting. Uh, um, I think it is going there. People are doing that. Just uh, currently is a little still, a little completely 
not in that way in compared to other fields where industry is really well developed so people can actually connect it with the companies to ask and get the feedback that's a little more challenging for soft robotic community because traditional robotic companies are generally not give or not very hugely interested in this thing but it doesn't necessarily be a robotics company in my opinion it can be a healthcare company it can be a medical device company it can be a like a uh, 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 IT companies like a Facebook or Apple that wherever that they find the technology useful they can give a feedback and the company big companies feedback generally in the form of the money which is sponsored the research which is a great thing to promote the order thing as well so that will be uh, I think it's ongoing and people have to try more on that and once this kind of a parallelism with the pure academic exploration and a little industry relationship driven uh, a tangible conversion into the real application would make the whole field so much healthier uh, than mm. everybody is are watching National Geographic to find the next animal to be inspired. <laughs> <laughs> Since you mentioned, um, why do you love rabbits? I feel uh, I saw that you're a rabbit lover, if I understood. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know, but I think true love is not explainable. So I cannot explain, but it's so cute, you know. I even almost feels like there is a theoretically quantifiable quantity called the cuteness and the rabbit is overloaded with it. It's so cute. So I just like it. I had multiple rabbits myself when I was in Korea. Uh, my first uh, hugging door for sleep was rabbit. So I think I was somehow emotionally attached to the animal. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of rabbits in Cambridge and Boston. There are so many, like, I even like uh, had a theory that why the United States is so powerful. It's because 50% of the rabbit population lives in North America. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So I don't know if you have any advice or something you'd love to share. And uh, maybe in this journey, stick to your mind, maybe advice you give it to you, would, would love to give. And what also makes you fulfilled? Because I feel that your way of thinking, I really admire again, I feel that you are different uh, in a sense that more critical and you try to not to go with the trend. And I think that's also good quality to, to have your own mind about the things and analyzing them. You see what I mean? So what makes you fulfilled in that sense and how you develop that? Yeah, they are critical. Well, critical. Yeah. Well, I think uh, because I am from Korea, which is uh, Asian culture, uh, very competitive. Uh, my compatriots are very similarly tough folks in that sense. So I grown up in and educated uh, in my early part of my uh, uh, part there. So I kind of feel always, and I actually feel the same in the U.S. too, is that we have to forget about others are recognizing, evaluating ourselves. We have to don't care about it. It's just all about ourselves. Like for example, when I write a paper, well, I like to publish in a fancy journal. I like the figures are being great. Why? It's not because those fancy journals are a good thing. It's not because fancy figures are increasing chance of getting those journals. It's not. For me, it is my self-satisfaction. Self if I push there, many more people will read my work. Why not? 
And uh, research paper is a form of art. I just wanted things to look beautiful. Why not? So uh, it's it's same thing. I think we need to sometimes a little forget about how others evaluate others, but it's more like better to focus on ourselves. Uh, like just do what we want to do and just critically think about uh, why I have to do this. Why I want to do this. What is my purpose? It's almost like a religious question. What is my purpose? You know, why, what is my, why I, why, why I do this? Like, uh, there are so many great things to do, but why I now need to do this? These are more uh, existential questions, almost religious philosophical questions. But I think those are very important because um, I sometimes, like I have worked and did well in competitive academia, frankly speaking, but I really hate that because I don't say it is bad by itself, but just environmentally, it pushes young, bright-minded folks too hard on certain uh, criteria that they define as a success, which is actually not giving success at all. Is that people generally, sometimes in such an environment, people forget to ask very simple questions, very simple questions. Well, what I want to do? What's my purpose? What's the thing that I really like to do? But rather people in such an environment, people sometimes being forced to choose something that looks good by this community's definition. That's really bad. Uh, so to me, uh, for my research career, I frankly don't care about a position title whatsoever. It can be anything. Um, but I always try to go to better place. I always try to get more money. That's a that's an obvious thing that every human being have to pursue. But the most critical thing that may drive all the decision is my purpose. What is my purpose? And for me, my purpose is a uh, uh, as an engineer is I have to bring something uh, good, something truly make the difference uh, uh, in the area that I care. So that's my purpose and. There can be many ways to pursue it, so I just need to always optimize and seeing different opportunities whatsoever. So I think people have to just ask a simple question. Uh, I talk with many starting grad students, many people ask the questions, concerned. Um, sometimes it's very frustrating that people don't have a room in their mind to ask very simple questions. It's like, uh, they are asking like, what fields are publishing more paper? Like, uh, is this topic have a chance to publish in this journal? Well, I can answer that because I have knowledge about it. But the fact that I can answer that means that's the right question. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in that sense, I also kind of, uh, because I kind of switched a little bit to the non-academic career, I also start to rec I didn't think about this at all before, like because I'm fully in academia, I could stay in academia forever. So that's why I didn't think carefully about it. But now I also now I really feel that um, sometimes people evaluate somebody's career uh, path is in certain criteria and, you know, 
being judgmental that what career path is successful career, what career path is not successful career, what career path is more superior than others and inferior than others. I think it is a, a world very toxic attitude that academia have developed somehow we have to discard all of them. Because those are predominantly pre-existing uh, criteria are really like messing, especially junior researchers' mind in terms of uh, helping them to asking the question, what's really the purpose they feel to fulfill? And you know, people get scared if the purpose, that something that they really like is not matching with the community's criteria about a success or a superiorly good career, people get scared. People got very insecure feels. And you know, they are courageous or not courageous. They are, they are kind of less sensitive people who just don't care about it. They just do what they're doing, which is beautiful minds. But <laughs> smart people also tends to be more sensitive on those mm. things because they are smart enough to actively processing all those reputational inputs very well. So they got scared and sometimes they make a decision based on this kind of community pressures, peer pressures, and sometimes PI is not helping but exacerbate, exacerbating these things. Yeah. So I think uh, we really need to collectively have uh, tried to discard this thing. There is a no superior, inferior careers. And one thing that I truly love and really enjoy while since I choose to switch a little gear that when I was in academia, most of the successful people had very monotonous career. You know, did a great, did a PhD in grade school, did a postdoc in a grade school, get a faculty job in a prestigious university, got a several early career award, got a tenure, got a several mid career award, got a several senior award, lectureship, and the big guys in the community. But that's very monotonous. But one thing that I really impressed and loved when I switched gear a little bit in a uh, non-academic career is most of the successful people in there have extremely, even like unimaginably complicated careers. They did that, mm. that, that, like it's somebody was a professor in some university, quit and go to the company and sell the company and do the completely different thing and go back to university and go back out to the company. It just, it's just a, almost so random for everybody. So it's so unique for everybody. So I think uh, that was really inspiring for me. And for me, it's also kind of feel a little risky of uh, not getting into cozy academic career. But whenever I have a chance to meet those uh, non-linear career folks who are amazingly successful in what they do, it's giving a kind of a comfort of mind. Like, gee, like it, it, this guy's CV is a mess, but it's still great. Uh, what's the point of worrying about those? So. I think uh, uh, it would be really great if the academic institutions or whatever, everybody um, try to find out there are a lot of people who have a, such a nonlinear careers. Maybe it would be greatly helpful to introduce those people or, uh, you know, to the community that look, this guy's CV is just random. It's almost like a, you have a multiple name card spilled on the floor and just picked up. <laughs> But it's still so much successful. So the non-linearity of the career doesn't mean 
uh, not successful career is actually leading to the more success. So, so I think those kind of thing uh, is that my uh, advice, which not even advice, because I actually learning now actively. So it's something that I would love to learn ten years ago, I should say, hmm. that the careers can be very non-linear, and there is nothing to worry about it. And so it's a, there looks so much fun and excitement to follow the heart of what they want to do. And there are so many unpredictable ways things are being developed. Um, so that's something that I would want to say, like, uh, don't try to limit one's focus, especially in academic uh, uh, programs in all the junior researchers. Don't try to think or idolize a very common Mon like linear monotonous careers in schools don't take it as the epitome of a successful career there are a lot more there are a lot more exciting or multiple variety of colors of a successful careers and it sometimes requires a multiple switching between fields so those are out there just fact that they are not a faculty that who are interacting mostly with the students so it's not easier to get exposed for junior researchers in school system but that doesn't mean that that's not a good thing so i think just take a look at the many others outside of the school and get inspired by those people's non-linear way well, extremely successful career but you know doesn't that doesn't mean that everybody should like uh, drop out of the Stanford to become next uh, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg or everybody have to drop out of the Harvard to next uh, Bill Gates. It doesn't mean that, but just the fact that there are many nonlinear careers out there. Who, many of them have a PhDs. So it doesn't necessarily need to idolize and try to make the one's life plan based on very monotonous uh, uh, academic career that probably many of the successful academics in school system have. So there are a variety of different ways. And therefore, you know, we always need a role model to get a uh, fight our own fears, right? Because unpredictability is the source of the fear. But if we, if somebody know uh, some, someone who have a so messy career, but yet very <laughs> successful, yeah. I think that's a uh, much helpful than people who have a, like a, beautiful like almost uh, like exemplar a uh, career that is every single step is success and elite i think uh, it's much better to take a look at the role models that have a super messy cv <laughs> i have to say it i to be honest with you i'm really inspired by what you said and i consider this is really i'm honest the role model for me to to say these words we need that words and i it's uh, i think I think that's really powerful for me to say this, and I needed to be honest to listen to that. So thank you, thank you for saying that. Thank you. Yeah, well, I have to say it because I'm tr I'm start to make my CV messy. So far, it was clean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my CV was so far was impeccable, but now I start to make it very messy. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure you're doing. I'm I'm sure you will. You would do a great stuff. Uh, that's I'm I believe in that. So I don't know if you have any final words like to say for people listening. Any final words like to say? No, and it's just great honor to have a chance to talk with you. I really love, and uh, 
you are doing a very interesting uh, influence on software bias community, I can see. Uh, so hopefully it will continue to do a great job. And um, maybe it will be very interesting if you like uh, start to increase your outreach to more conventional robotics works as well over time. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, I'm not a robotic roboticist, so I cannot say for them, but just I feel like uh, 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 people like you can be a very powerful ambassador who try to collect the different voices in the same community, but generally not work together. Uh, um, that will be very interesting because there are some opinions that traditional robotics folks are having about the community, and there should be a lot of value that people have to learn from.